Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning, and uh, welcome to the Heritage Foundation. My name is David Burton. I'm Senior Fellow in Economic Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. Today is one of a number of events in our speaker series called Free Markets, the Ethical Economic Choice, and uh, information is available about the series on our website. Uh, today, our speaker is the Reverend Robert Sirico. His subject is the moral case for a free economy. Reverend Sirico is the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute. He lectures at colleges, universities, and business organizations throughout the United States and abroad. His writings on religious, political, economic, and social matters have been published in a wide variety of journals, both newspapers and academic journals. He is, by my count, the sole author of six books, including Catholicism's Developing Social Teaching, The Moral Basis for Liberty, Toward a Free and Virtuous Society, The Entrepreneurial Vocation, The Soul of Liberty, and Defending the Free Market, The Moral Case for a Free Economy. He writes with clarity and depth, and I would strongly recommend his works. He is also the co-author, contributor, or editor of a number of other books, including Capitalism, Morality, and Markets, a field guide for the hero's journey, and the social agenda, a collection of magisterial text. He received his Master of Divinity degree from Catholic University of America and did his undergraduate study at both the University of Southern California and the University of London. He is a member of the Mont Pelerin Society, the American Academy of Religion, and the Philadelphia Society, he is on the Board of Advisors of the Civic Institute in Prague. Father Sirico also served on the Michigan Civil Liberties Commission in the 1990s, and his pastoral minister, ministry excuse me, has included a chaplaincy to the AIDS patients at the National Institute of Health, and he is the pastor of Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Please join me in welcoming Father Sirico. Thank you. Thank you for coming out today. Um, it's good to be back at the Heritage Foundation where I have a lot of friends and probably a few detractors, which is good for the course. Um, I'm, I'm here today to speak to you about the free economy, and I want to do this um, in a way that's perhaps somewhat different than your day-to-day -day occupations. I know that many of you are occupied with, um, as they say, making the sausage. Uh, and that's a necessary practice. It's what heritage exists for. It's, it's putting together policies and tending to details and mapping out strategies and making uh, 
utilitarian arguments. And all of that is very important. But I want to give you the opportunity today to just kind of pull back a little bit and look at the bigger picture. And by that I mean uh, helping, to, helping you to reflect on the moral dimensions of the free economy which we defend, not just the utilitarian dimensions. I think the case for the utilitarian advantage of free markets and free people uh, is pretty well established. Even if not everybody believes it yet, there is an inevitability, I don't mean a determination, but just by virtue of the fact that socialism doesn't work, uh, at least we're going to win at some point, or we're not going to be around to talk about it. Uh, but I want to reflect with you today as a pastor uh, in your work that can augment and form and deepen what it is you do and give you not just the, the data of what you do, which you accumulate regularly here, and this building produces a lot of that data for people to reflect upon. Again, as important as that is, but the why. And I speak to you as, as someone who didn't always believe in these ideas. I speak to you as someone who, who came from the left in the 70s. Uh, in California, I was extensively involved in left-wing activism. I knew Jane Fonda and Tom Hayden during his campaign for the uh, U.S. Senate in the 1970s. I picketed with... Uh, uh, Cesar Chavez's group, the Farm Workers Group. I was at the early uh, feminist and gay um, demonstrations and um, at the tail end of the, uh, the protest of the war in Vietnam. And all of that activism came out of a deep concern that I had for justice and that I have for justice to this day. And that itself was formed by an encounter I had when I was a kid in Brooklyn, New York. I relate this story in my book, The Moral Case, Defending the Free Market, The Moral Case for a Free Economy. And um, uh, our uh, organization, the Acton Institute, has just produced a beautiful video of my narration of this, but with actors. So the, the whole image that I've projected in this story has now been Re redone uh, in a little 10-minute video that has won some awards from Jewish film festivals and even some Marxist group liked it for some reason. I must be losing my touch. Um, but I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, which, as you know, is a... Well, I don't know. I, I can't say that anymore. I, you know, the, the Brooklyn, New York, I think of is Ralph Crampton and, and the Honeymooners. Uh, but now I'm told that the hipsters have invaded... Uh, my my dear Burrow, um, and but the Brooklyn I grew up in was a very ethnically diverse uh, place with all kinds of rough and tumble people, and we grew up in a small apartment above Coney Island Avenue, which was near the beach. We had to take the bus down to the beach, and if you walked out the door, you just ran into all your different neighbors with all different kinds of accents and. Uh, colors and smells and languages and stories to tell. Our little apartment had a little kitchen that looked into a, what was basically an, an access, a roof access to go up. So it kind of like, 
the Honeymooners apartment. For you younger people, you'll have to Google that and see what I'm talking about. But you, you just go out. But in our case, you could actually walk across two or three steps to a, another apartment, an identical apartment, and another kitchen window. And I would see from time to time Mrs. Schneider, Mr. and Mrs. Schneider occupied that apartment, and I would see Mrs. Schneider in her kitchen. And this particular memory was of her standing in her kitchen on a spring day making some pastry, Eastern European pastry called rugola. And she was rolling out the dough and um, had a mixture of... um, uh, walnuts and cinnamon and butter and cream cheese and sugar, of course, and uh, was assembling these rugolas where, where you kind of roll them into a crescent and put them on the sheet and put them into the, um, uh, into the oven. And as she did that, I became mesmerized by the whole process. And of course, once the fragrance from her kitchen wafted over to our kitchen, I was completely entranced. And uh, I just was peering over my windowsill, uh, watching her undulating motions back and forth from the from the bowl to the the uh, crescents to the oven back out. And she didn't look at me once during that whole period of time until the end, when she placed some of the rugula on the windowsill and looked directly at me. She said. You'll come, I'll give you to eat. And so I scampered over my windowsill and I went there with my greedy little hands and she put a napkin over my hands and proceeded to place these warm, luscious rugula onto the napkin. And as she did so, I noticed that there were a series of blue tattooed numbers running up her forearm. I had never seen that before at that time, although many times after that, uh, I did see it in Brooklyn, and anybody of my age uh, growing up at that time um, knows the experience. Um, But to be honest with you, I was more preoccupied with arugula, (laughs) and so I wrapped them up and got them into the kitchen and hid them behind the uh, bread box from my siblings, and um, my mom came in, and I said, Mrs. Rugula gave me some rugula, uh, Mrs. Schneider gave me some rugula. And I said, but Mom, why does she have numbers on her arm? And my mother told me what became, for me, a a defining way of thinking about the world. Uh, She said, you know when you watch television on Saturday mornings and you watch the Cowboys and Indians and the Cowboys lasso the, the calves? I said, yeah. She said, and what do they do with the calves? I said, well, they tie them up and they turn them upside down and then they brand them. And she said, why do they brand the calves? And I said, that's so that all the other cowboys know who owns that calf. She said, that's what people did to Mr. and Mrs. Schneider because of their religion. There's something about the natural law that doesn't need a lot of words. I knew intuitively, and I think the human heart responds intuitively to a moral call. And I understood that there was something horrendously evil. Now I can describe the anthropology of it with beautiful philosophical, biblical language, even economic language. 
But at the time, I knew it as a whole. I knew it morally. And from that time to this time, it has formed the way I look at the world. And it's an anthropological. At the root of what I'm talking about is essentially an anthropological assumption that is informed and given to us, or explicated at least, to a very great extent by the Judeo-Christian culture, by Western civilization, which tells us that human beings are not the tools of other human beings, that human beings have an inherent dignity within themselves, and that they are distinct from animals. They are distinct by virtue of our, our capacity to reason, our capacity to love, our capacity to be creative, but also by the acknowledgement that there is in the human heart um, a certain infinity, that we are created for eternity. Uh, by the way, that can get us in trouble, <laughs> because our appetites, as the result of our transcendence, can be insatiable. And when we settle for things to satisfy our appetites that are not in accord with transcendence, that is, when we settle for baubles, when we settle for simply the response to our passions rather than the guidance of our reason, then we can get in trouble with that transcendent uh, tug. Human beings in this anthropological conception are more than the sum total of their physical parts. And this is what, and I, I'm, I'm trying to explain this now in the broadest language possible so that we can bring as many people as possible into this conversation. And so I think that begins the whole question of the social reality, of the political reality, indeed even of the economic reality. Because in the biblical vision, this man and this woman who were created by the hand of God were created both of the material substance of the world, the dust of the earth, but into them was breathed the breath of life, which is the transcendence, the, the something more than the material world, though acknowledging the material world. And this context, in the, in the imagery of the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden, is a physical reality. In the Garden of Eden, or what precedes the Garden of Eden, is the creation of the material world by this transcendent God. And then he situates the human family into this material world. And this is what gives rise to the question of economics. What is economics? Economics is simply the, the search for the best use of scarce resources. It's the recognition of the limitation. And of course, the prime limitation of the human person is time. We have a beginning, we have an end. And then there is this physical limitation of space. And we have to acknowledge that. If, if, if we are so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good, as the Baptist preacher once said, then we, we're not accounting for the totality of reality. And so this is the beginning of economics. And you see that economics really, in a sense, is a moral science first, because it is a human science. It is, as Mises terms it in his uh, great work, human action. 
It's human beings making evaluations with regard to survival. Now, this has more to do with who we are than just the knowledge that we accumulate. Um, we will never be satisfied as human beings just having perpetual access to Google. It gives us the data. There's an old, um, I, I know I'm dating myself in several respects, but there's this old um, uh, television series called Dragnet uh, on television when I was growing up. And inevitably, the Detective Friday, I think was his name, he'd come upon a victim or a witness to an event, and they'd be hysterical, and they'd be, you know, saying how they felt about it. And, you know, he'd, and he'd always say, this was a recurring line of his, the facts, ma'am, just the facts. But the facts are not what human beings search for in their deepest longing. It's the meaning behind the facts that we search for. Now, I know that you here at Heritage uh, have to deal with facts. I, I wish you could get that point across to people much more uh, generally, because more and more people deal not with facts, but with feelings, as though feelings alter reality. But it remains the case that the deepest quest of the human heart are not the facts. It's not the facts. It's why. What for? What do the facts do? And I suggest that by having this moral dimension in our arsenal, we make a more substantial case for the free economy. Uh, by moral case, I don't mean doctrinal or denominational, much less scolding and shrill and judgmental. I mean a broader understanding of the dignity of human beings. And this story that I've told about Mrs. Schneider, this metaphor that I use with regard uh, to prices and, and economy that emerges uh, from the existential reality of who human beings are, gives us a wide berth in which to discourse in a way that I think all people, without regard to their um, political proclivities, uh, will be open to. Now, that's not to say people will always agree on these things, because these are, these are general principles that I'm talking about. But I think they do... Uh, tend in a direction that speaks about because a human being is more than their material parts, because a human being is rational and creative, that human being, by nature, has the right to be free. That we have to make our own choices in our lives as they affect our lives. And that the economy is something that's not just one part of a whole menu of things, but it's something that pervades the whole of the terrestrial human reality. There's nothing that we do on this earth that doesn't have some interplay 
with prices or commerce or exchange or building or creating, that human beings have the capacity by virtue of our reason to draw out from the natural world, from the resources of the natural world, which are not yet wealth, and transform them. And when we transform them, this is called a market process. And that act of transformation and the offering of the result of that to other people is called a market economy. And animals don't do this. I was speaking once, and somebody said, well, but, but beavers build dams. And I said, well, that's true. But beavers don't build series of dams and then rent them out to other beavers. <laughs> In other words, animals exist by instinct. They are bound to the material world by instinct. Human beings survive primarily by the use of our minds by our reason. And that's what enables us not just to exist in terms of our senses, but to have the capacity to reflect upon our existence. And even more than that, to reflect upon our reflection of our existence. And this is the great nobility of man. This is what makes us noble. This is what, or at least gives evidence of our potential nobility, and certainly our intrinsic dignity. The founders of this country understood that. They understood that, and you see it in, in a line in the Declaration, of course, the famous line of the, the Declaration of Independence, which I think a lot of people don't understand today, or if they do, they ignore it. that we hold these truths to be self-evident. They're axioms. They don't need any further argumentation because to deny them is to deny your own existence. That all men are created e equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That, that is to say that the rights we possess as human beings are part and parcel of who we are as human beings. And all of that goes back to these moral texts to the scriptures of Western civilization. And if we can approach, I'm, I'm not saying that the Heritage Foundation needs to become the um, Heritage Evangelis Evangelistic Society. You know, you need to do what you do, and you need to do it on the basis of your competency and your research and your professionalism and attending to the details. But if you, as researchers, as interlocutors, as debaters, as policy formators, do this with a greater moral sensibility. And I, again, I say that in an ecumenical uh, understanding of the word, that, that, that there are a lot of different ways and a lot of different language that we will use to come at these essential shared truths which are self-evident. And that these inalienable rights mean that as part and parcel of who we are as human beings, these rights cannot be separated from us as human beings. They can be violated, they can be ignored, they can be obfuscated or curtailed. But each of us possesses these rights without regard to our religion, without regard to our race, without regard to our economic status or our physical status, 
We're just, that's just what we are. We are rights bearers. And all of that implies a certain purpose to our existence. And that's the other thing that uh, I think is important for you in Washington, D.C., you who, who labor in this, um, well, it's been called various things. I'll call it a vineyard. You can call it a swamp if you want. Uh, but who labor in this swamp, uh, that to have this moral vision and to understand that what you are about has a purpose beyond just winning the political battle. People don't go to the barricades for a policy, for a point of utilitarian argument. People go to the barricades for a moral quest. They go to the barricades because of a right a sense of right, a sense of purpose. We call that in philosophy a telos, an end, a goal. That human life is not haphazard or mistaken. It, it has a purpose, and it's a purpose even beyond the purpose that we give to our own lives. That a deep enough reflection on ourselves reveals that the is of who we are implies the ought of who we could be. Lord Acton, of course, the name, the patron that we took for the Acton Institute once said something to the effect that the, the freedom of which we speak is not the liberty to do what we want, but the freedom to do what we ought. So that there has to be a moral orientation to our freedom. Now, Jonah Goldberg, in his latest book, made an, a very simple observation, but he put it in, in a very memorable way. He said that for all of human history, up until the last roughly 150 or 200 years, human beings were preoccupied with one essential goal, and that was survival. How do we survive? How do we produce enough stuff in order for us to survive, to keep us from freezing, uh, to keep us from starving, and all of the rest of it. Because now all of that is shifted. Now what we have to learn how to do is how to live with abundance. And I don't think the tectonic plates have quite shifted into place where we're, we're all agreed across the board that this is the question. But I think they will shift into place. And the only way to answer that question is with some kind of moral frame of reference. How do we live with the abundance that we have access to now? It's very subtle, and as I say, our transcendence won't get us out of the problem of having to deal with that question, because our transcendence, as I said, can cause us great confusion when we substitute the temporal for hunger that is really eternal. The work you do is very important here. And I know that it's very difficult. And I also know, again, to allude to Acton, probably his most famous citation, often misquoted, the power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
and you are in a vortex. You are in a, a, a centrifugal force around power here. It, it just every belch of the capital is something everybody in this city refers to. If I were to do the rounds of uh, Christmas cocktail parties, there would be maybe five conversations that you would have at all of those cocktail parties as people are looking at you, but really looking over your shoulder to see who just came in the room so that they can give them their business card and increase their network and all of this kind of positioning. And those five conversations would have to do with what's going on in the capital. Now, I'm not saying that those conversations are not important, but they're not the most important. And the resolution to the problems that those conversations represent are not most essentially resolved by the dividing up of power. Because politics leaves losers. Markets enables everybody to win. And because when markets are free, people exchange or do not exchange based on their perception, even if it's subjective, their perception of their own benefit. All of that has to be contextualized and oriented to something higher than just utility. And that's why, uh, in speaking about the moral case for a free economy, I rooted in anthropology, tried to give reference to it with regard to uh, the Western tradition, and hopefully point to not just our origins, but to our destiny as well. Um, I'd like to close with, uh, um, um, I'm a pastor, so I, I do a lot of preaching, if you didn't notice. Uh, I use parables a lot. I got that from somebody. <laughs> and it worked for him, as well as today. Uh, and this is uh, a memory of sitting on a porch in Michigan. Even though I'm from New York, I, I've lived in Michigan for many, many years now. And I was sitting on the porch of our house, and there was a tree out to the side of the house that went up way above the three stories of the house. And as I looked at the top of that tree, I saw something very interesting. Part of the tree was in bloom, and part of the tree was dead. Now, as I say, I'm from Brooklyn. What do I know from trees, right? You know, there was one in Brooklyn once. But they got it. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I discovered there's such a thing as a tree doctor. And so we called him, and he came over, and he made the rounds about the tree and picked up some of the, uh, the dead leaves and picked at the bark and looked at the roots and came up to the porch, and he said, the, the tree is dead. You need to take it down. I said, what do you mean the tree is dead? Half of it's blooming. Can't you get the rest of it to bloom? And he said, no, that's an illusion. He said, because the sap is working its way through the trunk of the tree, and season after season, there will be less and less sap. And that means that there will be less and less bloom. So this trunk of this tree is weakened. And if you don't take it down in a Michigan winter, you might have it on your house. So you need to take it down. The roots are dead. I don't think that the roots are dead in 
this country. I think they're under great assault, and I think they're terribly neglected, and I think they're unknown because we have generations of people now who live as though the prosperity that we see around us is just, has always been the case. Well, it hasn't always been the case. And you just need to do five minutes of historical reading to see that it hasn't been the case. Part of your work is to tend to those roots. And you can't tend to those roots if you don't understand what they're rooted in, if you don't understand our origins, which is an anthropological assumption about the dignity of the human person, which is first and foremost a moral vision. So I wish you well in your task. I certainly wish you well in this season of Advent and the coming season of Christmas and all of the other different kinds of holidays that we celebrate so freely in this country, because these are times for us to be with our friends and our families, our congregations, and our neighbors, to reflect on the meaning of things and not just the things themselves. God bless you, and thank you for your attention. All right, we have time for questions, and I suppose I... Uh, would like to ask one before we get to the audience. What would you um, regard as the moral problem with socialism? Obviously, we're hearing a lot about socialism these days. Uh, so could you uh, address, sort of provide a critique of, 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 the, of socialism? I'm sorry, so it's the moral problem of what? socialism? Yes. Oh, socialism. OK, I, I was mishearing you. Yeah, well. <laughs> You very often have people say, well, Jesus was a socialist, right? And in the New Testament, uh, the early church had all things common. Uh, so that's socialism, right? And that, of course, is a misunderstanding of what socialism is. Socialism isn't community. Socialism isn't family, right? Families, you don't have to, families can live um, not based on a price system, because they know each other. They love each other. They have a common, well, sometimes they love each other. <laughs> um, they have a, a common language, a common origin, a common sensibility. Uh, and, and, and the key thing in all of that is their knowledge of each other and their bonds to one another. Socialism wants to take the ideal of the family and socialize it. They want to make it big. But the problem is when you move from this concrete set of interrelationships to this broader thing that we call society, it becomes necessarily more abstract. And of course, you have it here in Washington, D.C., where some policymakers or social workers or a combination of, of all of that are going to make uh, regulations that affect some mother in some city with her child as though they knew what that situation was. I think the, the moral flaw of socialism is that it substitutes um, the moral quality of volitional relationships for the decisions of bureaucrats. And in doing that, it 
literally dumbs down society. What do I mean by dumbs down society? Prices are a way that people's values and concerns and priorities are reflected. When prices are free, what you have is a flow of information. This, of course, I'm stealing right out of Hayek, right? Uh, but it's, it's incredibly the case that we have this intelligence, this data flow that just happens very naturally because when I buy something, uh, if you haven't seen the video iPencil or read it, please Google it, iPencil. It'll give you this whole thing. Talk about parables. It's a beautiful parable of this, of what I'm trying, the point I'm trying to make here, that when we don't have free exchange, free pricing, then I don't know the limitation of the resources that produce that particular product or the access to or the availability of workers and the cost of transportation and, and the demand for the product and all of the rest of those parts of information that come in that just appear naturally in the price of a thing. And I think that socialism, to the extent that it, 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 it becomes a dominant assumption in society, makes society stupider. Uh, it just dumbs down the whole knowledge that we have to operate with. And when there are dislocations, the solution that many uh, bureaucrats have, many policymakers have, is, okay, well, we'll write legislation that will correct that. And then when that doesn't work and makes it worse, they'll write more legislation that will correct their correction. And then when that doesn't work, well, I don't have to tell you that. You live in this city. You see these piles of legislation that no one person has read. Now, that's just kind of stupid. I mean, that's dangerous. And so I, I think uh, with regard to the biblical argument, uh, it is simply not the case that the early church was communist in the sense, or socialist in the sense, that they abolished private property. What they did was call for generosity. And it didn't become the normative model of economics for the church. In fact, it, once the church began to grow, that, that thing didn't work out very well. It didn't stop people from being generous. In fact, the great institutions uh, of our society, the hospital, institutionalized and internationalized charity, the university, all of these things did not come out of the minds of politicians. They came out of the spontaneous and voluntary interaction of people who saw needs and organized themselves in some way so as to meet those needs. It's, uh, I don't know if you ever remember that movie. Here I am again with old, old movies from the 1970s. I think it was called, um, oh, it was about the French Revolution. But it was a funny movie, and, and they're storming the um, Versailles, and the king and the queen had come out to get out of there, and all the crowds are running in, and, and they're running past the king and queen, not noticing them. And so they just run with them, you know, and they, they, they go, yes, as though they're part of the revolution. This is the government. The government sees things that, oh, that's great, let's do that, and we'll own that. And uh, whether it's... Um, hospitals or universities or some kind of social service or adoption agencies or orphanages or 
or civil rights legislation. All the, these things are working and they're beginning to work, and they say, that's great, let's take that over. Let's socialize that. And what it ends up doing is discoordinating. You know, socialism is, is a contradiction because it doesn't produce society. It doesn't produce, as Bastiat said, fraternity. You can't have forced fraternity. People have to be able to sniff their way around each other and decide, well, I like this person, or I like this person a lot, or I don't like that person. As long as violence does not play a, a central role in our relationships. And that's the, the final condemnation of socialism, that this ideal can only be achieved by the use of violence and force. That's what it does. If, if it's just an expression of sentiment or a moral admonition that people should be generous with one another and should share their wealth and all the rest of it, that's great. That's called Christianity. That's called Judaism. That's called Maimonides. That's called Mother Teresa. But that's not what socialism is. At the end of the day, it's the force of law and it's the barrel of a gun. And so that's why socialism is, is not moral. All right, questions from the audience? <coughs> this gentleman here. And if you just one, if you could identify yourself in any institutional affiliation. Eric Rosenman, Jewish Policy Center. Uh, you touched on it right at the end of your formal uh, remarks and then in this discussion of the nature of socialism and the ultimate reliance on force in place of free markets and choice. And yet, we, as Western society becomes more and more secular or secular fundamentalist, then the idea of human beings as having moral agency or transcendence and that somehow this connects to economics is, seems to be harder and harder to get across to people who look at a candidate like Bernie Sanders or anyone from that side of the uh, aisle promising more and more goods from the government, more and more government involvement rather than less and less in the economy. <clears throat> it seems to me every year to be a br broader gap to jump over to make that argument. How do, you, how do we jump that gap? I think we need to tell, we need to tell stories. We need to convince people. We need to make uh, more sharp points in our encounter. And the other thing we need to do is change the tone of the way we do that. I think we need to be winsome about it. Um, and that, that's hard to do, especially when you're a New Yorker and you like a good argument. But a lot of people don't understand that <laughs> about New Yorkers. You know, We're Italian bread, right? We're hard on the outside and soft on the inside, uh, in point of fact. But I think it's all become stale bread now. It's hard all over, all the way through. And so I think we need, um, we need to make the case in the context where people trust one another. And that can only be done when, when we're talking about things. You know, when I, when I look at people like um, Bill Buckley, uh, you know, a lot of his friends didn't, didn't agree with Bill Buckley at all but they respected him. And that's because he spent time with these folks over dinners or sailing 
or doing things that were mutually uh, of interest. And it brought a greater um, credibility when he spoke about something that might be more volatile, welfare reform or something like that. They, they knew that this was not a man who was disinterested in human well-being. But now it's very easy for Bernie Sanders to characterize uh, the Heritage Foundation as just in the grip of um, uh, evil interests. Um, so I think we need to befriend uh, in, in some sense. Uh, the Acton Institute conferences that we have, which deal largely with making this kind of a moral case, uh, and not everybody who attends is religious, though the majority of the people who are, but it spans the religious uh, and ethical uh, world. Uh, so there's a lot of potential disagreement in the room. You know, you get some hard-shell Baptist who, who only believes in adult baptism or, or a dyed-in-the-wool Roman Catholic uh, or, you know, these other... That's, that's a, a powder keg, except we don't have explosions because what we're focusing on are not those disagreements. We're focusing on solutions for the poor. What ends up happening is these folks get to know one another in that context of an honest civil discussion. And then when they argue about things that are more volatile, the level of that argument is deeper and richer. Uh, I don't think we avoid argument. I think we need to have argument. But I think we need to have real argument. And I don't see it much uh, on television. I don't see it much. I don't see people arguing. I mean, you, you look at the old firing line. Look, look at that and compare that to, yeah, I shouldn't say that in this building, but compare that to Sean Hannity. I mean, please, that's a food fight. That's, that's just throwing, that people don't even listen to each other on that show. Luckily, listened to... Television to, today largely consists of mutual insults. Yeah, and it's just not fun. It's just not fun anymore. So I, I think what we have to do is we have to really engage this at a deeper and new level. Uh, I'm confident in my ideas, so I, uh, on my best days, I'm not belligerent about them. <laughs> I say that on my best days because I go to confession regularly. <laughs> yes, ma'am. And if we could keep the questions relatively succinct, that would be good. Thank you. Um, Simone Gao was zooming in from Newtown Dynasty Television. Uh, I'm from China. I was originally from China, so I, I had a little bit to say about the question about that gentleman asked about socialism. Why is it like immoral? I think I have heard a lot of the discussion in Chinese uh, intellectual circles and stuff to talk about why socialism is not immoral. I think they didn't touch upon. Um, this one important um, aspect, which you touched upon today. I think that the most and more part of socialism is it does not recognize the connection between men and the divine. So, so because of that, it doesn't recognize uh, the inalienable rights of men. And then uh, goes from there, the government based on like establishment established um, upon socialism is not for protecting the rights 
of men. And then you you will have a a very different government. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not just socialism um, have that problem. I think in general, um, throughout China's history, you don't have this, um, uh, how would I say, the government, the uh, self-improvement, um, the moral, the core moral sense, like dignity of human beings, is only kept in the private sector. It's not in the public sector. So in the political system, uh, it's not, it's, you, you don't see it's the political system of China throughout the history is const- constructed around um, a sense of justice to achieve that. So I think that's a big problem of China um, before in ancient time and also today. Sorry, I didn't ask a question. Yeah, no, but but you you, you raised um, some very rich topics. In, in my travels to China and my engagement with Chinese intellectuals, in, including both people within the churches, but also those who are, who are seeking a solution for for China, because there's this great, you probably know, um, undoubtedly know but much better than I, there's this great angst, there's this great concern on the part of many Chinese people that this all is going, but where is it going? And, and more importantly, why is it going there? Um, you know, in a sense, I think uh, the question of socialism is too narrow a question, uh, which is why I, I went to the question of force. Um, the effects of socialism can be seen in non-socialistic societies when classes of people, uh, including business people, decide to use force to achieve their their aims. And you have the same effect. So in that sense, it's not just socialism. I think socialism is the largest modern example of this use of force. But honestly, crony capitalism is a form of the same kind of thing. Mercantilism, uh, various forms of protectionism are in the name of, uh, you know, the well-being of people, uh, have, have the same dislocating uh, effects that, that diminish the dignity and the freedom uh, of human beings. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville made a very interesting observation that as the moral ties in society, so the family or what we call here the mediating institutions such as the churches and other charitable organizations, as these ties weaken, the political tie strengthens. When the moral tie weakens, the politics comes in and fills that gap. So part of the solution to that is to make sure that we have a vibrant moral culture that is strong families and strong institutions that are protected from the invasion of, of political interests. So the people can work out their differences um, uh, among themselves um, and create a society that becomes worthy of, of human beings. Other question? Oh, okay. This gentleman here. Gordon Johnson, retired business person. Uh, You make a really good point that we need a context where people will trust one another. That basically describes the church. You're basically, you go to church voluntarily, everything's voluntary. You don't have any power over 
that the clerk doesn't have power over the, con the congregation. Uh, so we, but we have a state that we need rule of law, so we have laws we have to have force. Seems to me this is the government basically is where you don't trust one another. My question is, does that say that the, the real, we should be working for the ecumenical movement so that all religions could live peacefully together uh, and trust one another, where live in an environment of trust instead of an environment of rule of law? Well, of course, we have to have rule of law. I mean, law, the juridical framework is important because it enforces justice. That is, that people should be treated in accord with their desert. But in one sense, while justice is central, uh, and, and I, I would say law and um, some, some type of uh, legal system is essential to ensure that, that doesn't have to be certainly not the only thing or the most normative way in which uh, disputes are resolved. It would be far better for people to resolve disputes. I mean, today you have a great example of this. Any social impertinence doesn't just become um, a, a faux pas or where, where people are excluded from polite company. It becomes a, an occasion of litigation, and I think that's very dangerous because as that grows, it just it gallops. Um, it'd be nice to think that that uh, all philosophical and religious systems uh, would agree to shun the use of force, but not all do. And those who who advocate the use of force in their attempts to um, evangelize, to convert others. They should be prevented from doing that uh, legally, uh, if not uh, socially, certainly socially. Um, it's, you know, let me, let me hit on a, a very sensitive subject. You said that in the church there is um, a trust. There's a level of trust because people do it voluntarily. It's going to be very interesting to see how the Catholic Church deals with this question of trust in the face of uh, this abuse crisis that we're we're facing, um, I don't think we've we've even scratched the surface of this. And by the way, lest you non-Catholics sit back smugly and and watch the woes of Rome, uh, you're in for it too. Uh, the the reason ca the Catholic Church as a religion is getting hit with this is because of our organizational structure, because the money is located in one place. It's the bishop. Uh, and so when you go after a priest who has abused somebody who's been assigned by a bishop, uh, you, you, you resolve that by going to the big pot of money that's held by the diocese. Little Baptist churches with, uh, you know, 100 members don't have $50,000 in their account. They're not going to attract big lawyers to, you know, do that. But this abuse problem isn't a problem, is a problem across the board. And wait until it hits the public school system. I mean, this they have four or five times the amount of abuse and transference and cover-up that's gone on. And um, so uh, the, the way out of this, speaking now from a Catholic context, is through it. And I think um, what has to happen is 
uh, rigorous investigation, beginning with the Cardinal McCarrick thing, in order to recreate the confidence and the trust that is essential. Uh, so uh, it's not just coercion that destroys uh, trust, it's also deception. So fraud and coercion. This gentleman back here has a question. <clears throat> uh, good morning, John Gray from the Mankell Economic Education Foundation in Australia. Uh, you mentioned that you're very confident in your ideas, and, and rightly so. Uh, usually the, the people that hold these ideas uh, have done extensive research, a lot of reading, and so we know that the ideas that we hold are the correct ones. What we find today in society is that everything is boiled down to a soundbite. Uh, and I think the reason socialism has become so popular is, is they are very good at creating these soundbites. They're very good at just putting across a message very quickly. Uh, now, that's something that <clears throat> we necessarily can't do uh, because the ideas are, are um, you, you need to do a, quite a bit of reading to, to understand that they're correct. So in, in your view, uh, and, and you mentioned that we need to do a lot more um, or debating and arguing, and I agree with you, uh, but for the world we live in when we can't necessarily do that, uh, is there a text uh, that you would point to, uh, a shorter text or, or a text that's very, um, very easily digestible uh, that we could provide to our to our socialist friends, to, to the people that, that don't understand uh, the free market? Um, first of all, I think, I think the way we combat the bumper stickers is not with more bumper stickers, though that can have as well, but it's with parables. The, the genius of the parable is that it is a simple story that contains an incredible amount of complex ideas. And you kind of almost ingest it whole and then spend your time. And that's why there's a lot of debate about what are the meanings of the parables and what's the application here and there. So I think we don't just hit them with facts, but we give them stories, which are backed up with facts uh, also. Um, as to what I would recommend for um, our socialist friends, um, it depends on the socialist because there's, there's a variety of flavors of this thing. There was a book years ago um, that I found you know, very good from, from having been on the left, uh, very good in terms of prying open the minds of some people. But I don't know, I, I think I gave it to several people and they were just terribly bored with it. And I, you know, It was called um, National Economic Planning, What is Left? I think that was the name of it. And um, Alex, do you remember the name? Lavoy, Don Lavoy. Is it National Economic Planning, What is Left? Something like that. I don't even know that it's in print anymore. But what I liked about that book is he takes the best aspirations of the left and shows how their aspirations for a just society, for a society that provides for the well-being of the most vulnerable and everything, can only be achieved by a free, spontaneous order. And, that, and he goes back to the older um, you know, kind of founders of modern leftism and shows how the, the left today is not that. Um, 
John Tomasi, who was our second speaker, in effect does that in his book, Free Market Fairness. He accepts the left's premises and argues that markets best achieve a left-wing result. Also, by the way, I think I, I like Jonah Goldberg's book, um, the name of which is slipping me right now. Um, the Suicide of the West. Um, I, I really like that. You know, Enrique uh, Menendez Ureña, the Jesuit who became a member of Montpelier Society, he basically what is called the myth of Christian socialism yes. was published by Franciscan Herald Press, which basically takes them for granted that they're good willing, that they want to improve society, and with with facts and good theology and reasoning, mm -hmm. he counters the argument. So uh, I, I can pass you uh, uh, the the reference of of that book. What's the author's name again? His surname is Menendez. Ureña is was a Spanish U R E N, and I think the first man was 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 Enrique, uh, but he was a member. He's dead now, but it's a Jesuit, right? A Jesuit, yes, for sure. Jesuit being published by Franciscans. All right. Are there any other? Bridget. Hi, Bridget Wagner, Heritage. Um, I wonder if you could just mention, I mean, one of the parables you mentioned earlier, I pencil, I think is a great one, particularly for young people. But I wonder if you could just mention your uh, Acton Institute's Poverty, Inc. film series, which I think is another great well, way to reach. I, I should have mentioned that. Uh, Poverty, Inc. is a, um, a hard-hitting documentary uh, on the poverty industry. And it's really, I mean, <laughs> in one week, back-to-back uh, -back on, I think, one Saturday and the next Saturday, it won the Anthem, I think it was the, was it the Anthem or the, the award at some libertarian film festival. And then the next week uh, in California somewhere, the Topanga Film Festival, which was a left-wing film festival, they won awards at both of that. And Michael Moore said it was one of his top 20 films that year of the, you know, the, the, um, the Michael Moore uh, Film Festival up in Traverse City Film Festival. Uh, and people on the website said, it was kind of like that line from Princess Bride. I don't think you know what that means. You know, I don't think you know what this movie is about. Um, and what we did when we, we produced that, Poverty Inc. is the name of it, uh, is we just tried to show what happens internationally when, uh, when all these international organizations, whether it's the International Monetary Fund or the UN or even charities, disregard the intelligence of uh, indigenous producers and, and people. And that seems to jump over the ideological barriers it's in a way. That, and then we have a new series. These are smaller ones. These are just like 10-minute ones called The Good Society. And we've redone iPencil, but we've used uh, uh, coffee and baristas and uh, coffee shops uh, as to show what it takes to produce a, a cup of coffee. So those, those two resources are available, um, Poverty, Inc., and The Good Society. And I think all our Good Society films are on YouTube as well. Okay. Am I missing anybody over there? Well, 
Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you. This concludes our event.